You're listening to the Ambition Podcast. I'm Ellen Buchan, Communications and Insights Executive, AMBA and BGA. I was lucky enough to speak to Kevin Duncan, who's the author of over 20 management books and is a business advisor, marketing expert and motivational speaker. We spoke about his most recent book, The Intelligent Workbook, a visual guide to sorting out life and work. We talked about some of the theories in this book in more detail and also about some of Kevin's exciting upcoming projects. Here's that conversation. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Can you introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about your career, please? Certainly, yes. Nice to be here. So my name is Kevin Duncan. I guess I've been working for over 40 years now, which sounds an incredibly long period of time. But essentially, at the beginning of the 80s, I started in the advertising industry as an account trainee. And then I worked my way up and worked for 20 or so years in that industry. And then at the turn of the millennium, I set up on my own and I decided to write books and training programs. So I train people and I facilitate workshops and generally try to help people be better at the work that they do. Love to talk about some of your books. Um, your most recent one, the Intelligence Workbook, a visual guide to sorting out life and work. Can you tell me a little bit more about this book and maybe some of the inspiration and key themes of it? I called it the Intelligent Workbook, and I suppose there's a bit of a word play on it being a workbook because you can scribble in it. But the essential thought behind it was that about 10 years ago, I wrote a book called The Diagrams Book. And the origin of that was I noticed that people in training were using, instead of using, if you remember back in old lecture halls, people used to write longhand notes about what the tutor was saying. But I noticed that people uh, were starting to do things like triangles and circles and arrows and all these types of things. And I found that when I put up diagrams, I got a good result. So I then looked at all my training materials and I thought, well, I wonder how many diagrams I've got. And the answer was 46. So I found four more (laughs) and I wrote a book called The Diagrams Book with all those diagrams in them in a way that would help people express things on charts in a much simpler, pithier way than just writing millions of words. So fast forward to now, that book was really good to me. I mean, that was 2013. And I think we've sold 150,000 of those worldwide, and it's been translated into 16 languages. So the point about that was I kind of became the, the diagrams guy, and people always expected me to use them. So fast forward to now, and I thought it would be a really nice thing to provide a combination of lots of tiny diagrams with tiny bursts of words in between times to try to guide people how to do their work, get things done, think, plan, prioritise, even sell and negotiate and present. So actually, it merges the visual with the verbal. So you've got very short bursts of advice interspersed with 200 small visuals to help you get it really fast. And why do you think this move to kind of visual thinking is so popular nowadays? Why is this um, the sort of thing that people are writing their notes in lecture halls? Yeah, and I actually don't have an official answer to that question. All I can tell you is that diagrams are culturally and universally understandable in a way that written languages and spoken languages aren't necessarily. So you can have a multicultural audience put a chart up, and as long as you've got the basics right and kept it fairly simple, then 
a very wide audience will understand it. So what I discovered, but I didn't know when I wrote it, is that when the Diagrams book came out, discovered there was this entire international area, if you like, of visual learning. And that's why I think we had so many overseas translations. So that's about as far as I can get, really, at explaining why. I don't know why, other than the basic principle, that if you can show something rather than describe it, it gets everybody there faster and is probably a a great help. Definitely. Diagrams are much more easier to understand and easier to learn from. Yeah. Um, So in preparation for this, I was watching some of the videos you've made around these diagrams. And one which maybe called me out a little bit was the one on procrastination. Yes. People who work in sectors such as marketing, communications, like I do, tend to form a habit of working in a kind of a crisis pattern. Um, yes. And I was wondering if you, I haven't explained it very well, but could you explain a little bit more and maybe help me and other people who are listening, help them how to get out of that glitching from one crisis to another way of working? Sure, yeah. Well, first of all, uh, the irony never escapes me that when we are, we are in an aural medium, right? We are not showing anything because this is a podcast. And yet we're talking about something that's intrinsically visual. So I've become quite used to describing what these mini diagrams do so that listeners can understand what on earth we're talking about. So the one you're describing, which is all about procrastination, is uh, essentially a little diagram that shows what you might call a college essay crisis. So if everybody can imagine a flat line, just as it were, going from A to B, from left to right, and it's totally flat until you get to the end at the far right, and then it suddenly bursts into a panic of peaks and troughs, like a little burst of static, if you like, on a radio wave. Now, that's an essay crisis, and it essentially means that you get briefed on a Monday and you do absolutely nothing whatsoever uh, all the way through the week. And then at the last minute on Saturday night or Sunday, you have a mad panic trying to get your thoughts together to deliver for whatever that deadline was. So now if people could imagine that um, line plus static, as it were, back to front, in other words, you do the hard work, the peaks, the troughs to the left-hand side, and then you have a flat line run, a smooth run to execution. And that is the correct way to work. As you another diagram on motivation, and as I understood it, it's about how at the start of a project you're really, really excited about it, but then when maybe you have to start doing the hard work or you realise it's going to be maybe not as exciting once you kind of get past that first stage. Um, again, I probably haven't explained it very well. So could you explain a little bit more about that and also maybe give you advice on how organizations can minimize the dips in motivation and excitement over projects? Sure. This is something I call the motivational dip. And if people can just imagine uh, a very simple line going along the bottom, which is time and a vertical axis, which is your degree of energy or enthusiasm, keenness to get a thing done. And now, You can have any timeline you'd like on this, but let's start with a simple one of, say, one week across the bottom. So on a Monday, you take a brief and the line of enthusiasm goes up because you think, oh, this is is jolly exciting. It's marvellous. But by Tuesday lunchtime, you've looked at it and thought, 
Mm, this isn't as, as exciting as I thought, actually. And so that line peaks and drops down lower. And by about Wednesday, you think, right, well, I'm running out of time here, so I need to sort out and really get stuck into this thing, understand and do it properly, at which point that lo- that line flattens out so that it's level. And by the time you get to Thursday or Friday where the deadline is, it's either going to go up to success because you've cracked the problem or it's going to go down, in which case you've failed. So that's the basic shape of it. Where it gets very interesting is anticipating How, for example, if you're working with customers and clients, if you're working with colleagues or anybody of that type, you can predict when that slump, that motivational dip is going to happen. Whether you're motivating teams or you're doing something for a client, somebody somewhere is going to lose enthusiasm for the thing. And you can predict when that's going to be even over, for example, a three-year relationship. And so it's understanding that it's going to happen, which enables you to build in the things that um, anticipate it and make it less of a tragedy when it does happen. And we're speaking to kind of business school audience, whether that be student graduates or business school leaders. Um, And I was wondering in the context of this, and maybe in the context of someone doing an MBA, how could business schools minimize the students' motivational dips maybe after the excitement of the first few weeks is over. Yes, okay. So let's take that as an example of, let's say, you you could either do it per term if you were doing three terms worth of work or over the entire year. And I suppose you could, let's take the year. You could reasonably say, okay, I'm going to have a nice back-to-school mentality around about September. I'm going to get stuck in. It's all new. It's interesting. And then I do all right and I get through to Christmas. When I go back in January, I'm going to think, must I? Uh, And at that point, you've got a dip and you're going to have to get out of that. So by knowing that it's coming, you should be able to put in what I call trip wires, which are interesting things that stimulate you to make that thing more interesting. Now, if you're unable to do that as a form of self-discipline, then you may care to anticipate those dips, but actually ask somebody else to intervene on your behalf to say, right, can you please on the 15th of January, give me a kick and make sure that I'm at least 50% through the project work that I need to deliver on the 15th of February, for example. In other words, you've set up systems that intelligently anticipate the difficulties that you're going to have. That sounds like really good advice. Um, And yeah, sometimes needs other people to give you some motivation. I think that's the last diagram I'm going to ask you about. So of the diagrams review covers personality at work and how much of your true self you show at work and in the diagram you kind of advertise for people to show quite a lot of themselves or the true selves but how does this differ when people are working from home and because you the difference between home life and work life has narrowed working from home and does that change your thoughts on this I think it does change them a little bit. Let's just quickly describe for people how I represent this one. So if you could imagine two circles and they're sitting separately side by side, but they're not overlapping. That is my way of portraying that you've got a work you and you've got a personal you. And in very extreme cases where people are utterly different to the persona that they portray at work. They can be totally different at the weekend in the evening, totally change their approach and go into work in a place of work, an office, in a totally different frame of mind with a different attitude. 
Now, we can probably all see and understand that if an individual did indeed operate like that for a fair period of time, then they're going to be under intense stress because it's almost like acting. And it probably means that the culture that you're working in isn't sufficiently flexible or accommodating to allow you to be the person that you really are, in which case you're kind of faking it all the time. And the stress there and the dissonance is too much. So then we look at, well, how much overlap? And if there's only about a 10% overlap between your natural self and what you feel you have to be at work in front of other people, then that too is very stressful. So yes, I do suggest that if at all possible, people should work for companies that allow them to be themselves. And so that overlap level should be somewhere up toward 90%. So in that respect, you're totally relaxed. You can be yourself. You're appreciated for what your qualities are and your style and your character. And that allows you to do your best work. So that's, if you like, the backdrop. Um, Now, when it comes to working from home, it's quite an interesting development because people no longer have to go into the office and, as it were, pretend to be something they're not, and they're not under that degree of scrutiny. So in that respect, it's a little less stressful because presumably people working from home can be themselves a higher percentage of the time, assuming they're not sitting in front of a camera being observed all the time. So what they can do then is turn on, if you like, that degree of appropriate behaviour in front of a a, a Zoom call or whatever, um, and then they get a bit of a breather afterwards. So there are small benefits, if you like, but of course there's a huge downside because people are at the same time losing all the natural interaction that they have with teams when they're working in offices, and they're unable to pick up on-the-job learning because people aren't just physically together at the moment, which is uh, a shame. What about for people who are leading teams who are working from home? Do you have any thoughts on how you can maybe help them? Because that must be a really difficult job. I think it is, and it depends hugely on the scale of the team. I mean, some of these calls that I've been on, uh, you've had 50 people on there, you might have 100 and so forth. The bigger the number the more complex it is, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, A a lot of my clients have come up with all sorts of ingenious ways of keeping people engaged. And most of them do have, at minimum, weekly check-ins and logins and so forth. I think it's important to blend the individual with the communal, by which I mean, if you've got a team of 20 people, then yes, by all means, you're going to have a one-hour get-together to work out what everything's happening uh, for the week, say, on a Monday morning. But as a team leader or boss, I would pay particular attention to those people in these larger teams who aren't able to have their voice, as it were, in a way that they may have done uh, if you were in the office. Now, one classic example of that is the distinction between introverts and extroverts. And of course, because of the nature of this online technology, in a weird way, it makes it even easier for extroverts to dominate these conversations. So let's take a bad scenario and say there's a team meeting of 20 people and two or three people, the louder extroverts, pretty much dominate the majority of the airtime and they talk for 55 minutes out of an hour meeting, leaving 17 quieter people to strangely not really contribute or indeed get a word in. And if that's the case, that is a disaster for diversity, And it's a a disaster for 
the more thoughtful cerebral pre- people who don't necessarily shout as loud but have a huge contribution to make. And so if I were a team leader, I would be understanding that phenomenon and really paying careful attention to getting a balanced contribution from my entire squad, regardless of how shouty they are. That sounds like really good advice. Um, you're someone with your, you're very close to the ground in business. And I was wanting to ask you if you'd had any examples of really great innovation that you've seen from brands or organisations around having to adjust to COVID-19 and maybe just adjust to change. Yes, yeah, so th- this is quite an interesting question. Um, I think there are definitely two types of brands or products um, that have had to react to COVID in very different ways. On one end of the spectrum, you've got certain brands who were so behind when it came to digital and online matters that they've had the shock of their lives and they've had to fast forward what were otherwise pretty slow moving programs to become, as it were, more modern. And they've had to do it immediately in some cases. Um, Now, whether they've done that well or badly is almost irrelevant. They've had to do it. They've had to get up to speed and become thoroughly digital um, because they just needed the job. But on the other hand, you've got brands who I think have just been lucky, by which I mean the services and products that they offer just happen to suit perfectly with people being locked down. For example, software, uh, any kind of uh, downloadable digital entertainment, and of course, easy delivery and all those types of things. Those businesses have just got lucky because suddenly there's huge demand for their stuff at a level that there wasn't before. And then, of course, somewhere else, maybe a third category are brands that are just frankly dying. They're just gone. And um, things like the high street, for example, is a car crash at the moment of brands just falling by the way all the time. So they're clearly not adjusting. So I haven't really answered your question other than to say those are some of the things going on. But part of the reason is that I don't really like to glorify any particular brands for being utterly brilliant because they're either just adapting quite well as they should do or they're capitalizing on something and possibly just being lucky with it when i was searching for the podcast i it was really hard to figure out what to talk to you about because there's just so much that you've produced i think you've written over 20 books and on that kind of vein of things, I was wondering if you could give us a sneak peek onto what you're working next. Yes, sure. Yeah, you're right. Um, it's become a sort of running joke. Um, I have written over 20 books and I'm not I'm not quite sure how I manage that really, but <laughs> stuff still <laughs> seems to be coming out. But the running joke for me is that no sooner have I produced something, then my publisher will say, okay, so what are you going to do next? And this is almost like an annual ritual. Uh, yeah, so roughly speaking, what I do is I just I, I I behave in a way which I call being a mental magpie, and that is just constantly being curious and having a look and reading a lot and looking for things I find generally of interest. And a bit like a magpie grabs a bit of jewellery and lobs it in a nest and doesn't know what it's going to do with it. Um, I do the same thing. And I just shove these ideas and thoughts in a file and just ignore it. And then whenever uh, my publisher says, can you write another one, please? Then I I start rummaging (laughs) in all that interesting stuff to say, hmm, I wonder what an interesting theme would be. Anyway, so to answer your question, 
The one I'm working on right now um, is called The Bullshit Free Book. Now, anyone who's looked at my stuff will know that I've been collecting bullshit for my entire career, uh, over 40 years. And I've got over 2,000 examples and I've written dictionaries on the stuff. Um, But a discussion I was having with my publisher went roughly along the lines, that is very funny, that stuff, in a way, but it has has a very serious point to it. And that is that if communications and people's websites and their materials and business meetings and pretty much everything all the way through to politics is just full of bull, what earth can we do about it rather than just despairing? So the, what we came up with essentially is to try to write a book which analyzes this stuff, but also tries to guide people through what on earth they can do to reduce the amount of bullshit in all the stuff they have to deal with at work. So I got it down to essentially three sections. The first section will be a very quick explanation and analysis of the history of bullshit and how we got to this stage. And it's quite fascinating in one respect because very little is actually written about the topic. There's no shortage of bullshit itself. But there's very much, yeah, there's no shortage of that. It's endless. Uh, But there is a shortage. In fact, there's an almost entirely absence of any sensible academic writing which tries to analyse why on earth do people talk like this? Because if you think about it, it's completely mad. Anyway, so I I delve into that briefly at the beginning. And then in the second section, I analyse 100 pieces of bullshit. These are particular expressions which crop up all the time. And instead of just sort of recording them there, I have a little method where I've I've researched and found out the origin of all these things, if it's possible to find out, because it's not true with with all of them. But a huge proportion of them, you discover that they come from the military, they come from sports, they come from engineering, all sorts of places. And that in itself is fascinating to discover. And then I briefly, in about three sentences, explain the use and abuse of those phrases. Sometimes they can be useful, these phrases, but only in certain contexts. And other times they are just total abuse of the language. And then finally, I provide clearer ways of expressing what that piece of bull is trying to say. So on one page each, I do that 100 times. And then that enables us to get a full feel for where all this stuff is used and where it comes from. And finally, then At the end in section three, I'm suggesting ways to communicate better and more clearly. And I sort of bring it all together in a a manifesto for a bullshit free world, essentially, Um, which, of course, is nirvana. And it's never going to happen, but we can at least try. I might be pushing my luck here a little bit, but um, can you give me an example of what one of these phrases is? Oh, sure. Yeah, you're not pushing your luck. Um, In fact, everybody's heard them before I think I mean and it's interesting because I I actually as part of my research for the book I put out a a little post on LinkedIn and I had uh, several thousand replies I was essentially asking people what is your most hated piece of bullshit and I've got this sort of massive list of things but um, yeah I can give you loads of examples so going forward drives people nuts (laughs) because people will say well, you know, I want to talk to you about uh, Project Hat Stand going forward. You think, okay, what direction would you like to go in other than that? Sideways? Backwards? Why did you just say that? Time moves forward. You've just wasted my time there. 
So it's a completely redundant pair of words, uh, which just wastes everybody's time. Um, and there are thousands of, of, of metaphors and things like going for the low-hanging fruit and all this sort of stuff. Uh, so, yeah, if anybody wants to get into those, they should buy the dictionary first, which is the business bullshit book, because that's essentially a companion research book which will sit alongside the Bullshit Free book, uh, which is going to be out in October, I believe. Well, I'm certainly intrigued and, um, yeah, looking forward to giving that a read. <laughs> well, you're welcome. I've essentially, I've done the first draft and uh, around about now is when you get comments back uh, and so forth. And, uh, yeah, then people start selling things in. It still takes quite a long time. It takes four to six weeks to print a book. Then you've got to distribute it and so forth. It's got a sort of rhythm to it. Very much looking forward to that coming out in October, um, do you see? Yeah, that's right. And it's the the bullshit free book. I mean, it'll be uh, weirdly available for pre-order online already for what that's worth. But uh, it's, a, it's a long way off, isn't it, October? Or at least it feels it at this stage. It does. Yeah. Thank so, you so much for being on the podcast and answering all my questions. You're welcome. Thank you so much to Kevin for being on the podcast. I'm so excited to read his new book. If you'd like more about leadership, head to www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition and make sure to listen out for the next Ambition podcast released every Wednesday.